Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today is the Feast of All Souls, and in the first reading of the Mass, we read a particularly poignant passage from the Book of Wisdom. For many people, this, this phrase, this short paragraph, elicits a lot of memories and also a lot of consolation. The author says, the souls of the just are in the hands of God and no torment shall touch them. They seemed in the view of the foolish to be dead and yet their passing away was thought an affliction and they're going forth from us, utter destruction. But they are in peace. They are in peace. The souls of the just are in the hands of God. It's a beautiful passage that I still remember hearing many years ago, back in 1985, during a Mass for the parents of a friend whose parents had been killed in, a, in the air India bombing. They had both perished over, over the Atlantic, somewhere near, near Ireland, Cork, I believe it was. It was a great tragedy, hearing about this bombing of a plane with several hundred people on plane, on board, who perished. We just couldn't, couldn't fathom it. We couldn't believe it. And his parents were on that plane. How could this happen? As I recall, it went down over Cork, Ireland, and they found the remains there, and then they had to go underwater and dive. And there were these great, sort of hazy and, and grainy images of the actual plane with the logo of Air India. It was the first time I'd ever heard of Cork. It was a mid-air explosion. Then at that Mass, a few days after hearing the news, we had a, a requiem Mass for the parents. And that passage came up. The souls of the just are in the hands of God and no torment shall touch them. They were very consoling words, consoling things to say with regards to the righteous and with regards to their afflictions. And that it means that they have reason to hope. That's with regards to the righteous. And as that passage goes on, it talks about the evildoers. The, the author talks about the evildoers described as foolish. 
and that there is a, a fundamental error which causes them grief now. Any suffering they experience now, he says, will do them no good. Their death is, is previous and, and so and so what lies beyond basically is, is destruction. That's for the foolish, the unwise, those who have not confided in God. Now this book, the Book of Wisdom, was written in Greek, but for Jewish population. It's one of the later books of the Old Testament, probably written around the first, the middle of the first century BC, so say closer to the time of Jesus, when the new dispensation was opening up and there was a growing belief in the resurrection of the dead. And this book, the Book of Wisdom, talks about true wisdom and what it really means to have true wisdom. And, and one of the expressions of that wisdom was developing a deeper sense of the meaning of salvation a deeper sense of working out that salvation, especially in the beyond, not just here on earth, in terms of success or recognition or, or things going well here on earth. Even though the words in the Book of Wisdom are still somewhat vague, Christ, we know, will clarify all that and what that all means, that that victory over death will come in Him. Parts of the book are, are addressed to the rulers of the earth, urging them to love righteousness and to seek wisdom. And the wicked think that all is chance and that they should just enjoy each day, carpe diem. And the Book of Wisdom says they are deluded. Very strong words. They are deluded. It even suggests that the righteous one day will abide in the kingdom of God forever and shall some, in some way share in God's power to judge and to rule, which points to the ability of the righteous to intercede for us in some way. It's, again, it's still vague. It's still being developed. And it comes to fruition only in Christ ultimately. This can be applied to the souls in heaven, but it can also be applied to the souls in purgatory. And that's, that's what the Church dedicates today to, November 2nd, the souls in purgatory. The souls who have died. Now, they are on their way to heaven. They're not there yet, but they're on their way to face that throne of everlasting happiness, of, of salvation. In fact, you could say they have a ticket, they are assured a seat, but they're not there yet. There's room for them. And so today, in a mysterious way, we pray for those who have already crossed the threshold of death, who have died, yet are not yet in the fullness of life with God, yet. We talk about yet, it's as though there were time after death. There is no time, strictly speaking, but it's, it's such a mysterious reality. The only way we can speak about it really for us to understand it is in terms of time. So we pray for the dead. And this is what Pope John Paul II said. 
In praying for the dead, the Church above all contemplates the mystery of the resurrection of Christ, who obtains salvation and eternal life for us through his cross. To believe in the resurrection of the flesh is to recognize that there is a final end, an ultimate goal for all human life, which so satisfies man's appetites that nothing else is left for him to desire. That's the ultimate goal, that we'll be, we'll be completely satisfied, completely satiated, not wanting to desire anything. It says, Joined to the merits of the saints, our fraternal prayer comes to the aid of those who await the beatific vision. And that's what we do today. We come to the aid of those who need us, who need our intercession, because they've spent their life maybe living, probably giving a good, good life, uh, but they still need to be purified. They still need to be cleansed. And they count on our prayers. Just imagine people waiting for help. Like, like imagine a group of people waiting in an elevator that is stuck in a building. And there's no power. And they press the, the, the floors and the elevator doesn't, doesn't move. They can't get out. They're just stuck in the elevator. Maybe it's on a, a Friday night and they have to wait until Monday morning when finally people come back to the, to the building. But they can't do anything for themselves, really. They're just stuck in this metal box. But they know that eventually somebody will take them out. At least eventually Monday morning will come around. But for now, basically they have to spend the weekend waiting. They have to make the best use of their time among those four walls. Now if you knew that there were people stuck there in that elevator, you'd want to help them out. They depend on you. You'd get that, that specialist who knows about elevators, you'd get it there. It's a little bit what the intercession for the dead is like. Just as the life of those living according to the divine commandments obtains the merits that serve the full attainment of salvation. We are... We are helping them to come closer to their ultimate goal. And it's really an expression of fraternal charity. And ultimately an expression of love for others in the family of God. And ultimately an expression of love for God. Think now in your prayer of someone that you know that has died. Could be a grandmother, could be a grandfather, great grandmother, great grandfather, an uncle, aunt, a friend. As you get older, of course, more and more people, you know more and more people that have died. Maybe you have a relative, maybe even a parent, or even someone you don't know personally. We heard this weekend about the sword attack in Quebec City that killed two, two people. And in the news I heard how there was a lady going there to the place where it happened. And 
and uh, this was the, I don't know, the journalist came to her and so basically stuck a microphone in her face and they asked her, how do you feel? How do you feel? And she looked at them and she said, I'm coming here to pray. I have to pray for these people who perished. I am here to pray for their souls, she said. So that they might be united to the resurrected Christ. That's what I'm doing here. And there was silence. She was clearly quite shaken by the event. I mean, some guy with a sword that killed two people. That's what we have to do. Think of that person or those people. Sometimes death or a sudden death, an unexpected death reminds us ultimately that we don't have a permanent place here. We don't have a permanent city. And that's obvious. Everybody knows that. We all know we're going to die. That's, we don't need any declaration of the church to tell us that. Nobody will ever deny that. There's no heresy that says there is no death. But thinking about death reminds us ultimately about the importance of purification. Purification. Because the day we arrive in that death, we have to be ready. We have to be ready. We need purification. We need atonement. We need acts of penance. Penance is there to purify us, to ready us for that most, uh, most fundamental of encounters. And we can do that through acts of love, acts of reparation, so that we can stand there before the throne of God, stand clear and purified in front of the Master. That's what we want. Because in this life we're like pilgrims on our way to a, a very specific destination like the pilgrims of old who used to walk for hundreds of kilometers to get to a pilgrimage church and there in, in the entrance portal there would be a large image or a large sculpture of, of our Lord of the of, of the Pantocrator, the Lord judging and then he's surrounded by angels and saints and, and apostles and people would cross that threshold as a reminder to them of what their death would be like, that they would stand in front of the throne of God, that he'd be judged. Now some people when they die, just automatically take for granted God's mercy. They ex almost think they, uh, they expect mercy. As though they absolutely should get, no matter what, no matter what they do, what they may do or say or how they may have lived, they absolutely have to get mercy almost as, an, as a specific entitlement. It's important we don't allow any attitude of entitlement to seep in. It would not be the right way to see mercy. Of course God is merciful, but that doesn't mean we are 100% entitled to it in the same in, in that way. Now today, today the vestments of the priest were traditionally were in black. You would wear the priest would wear black. The, the vest, the, you know, the chasuble and so forth. 
because it's a it's a sign of mourning. Black is a sign of mourning. It's not a sign of despair. Black directs us in a particular way to mourn and to pray for the dead. Well, violet, which is here, as you can see, the veil, the veil over the tabernacles in violet, is also, it's not so much a color of mourning, it's more a color of penance and sorrow for sin and reparation. So usually funerals are either in black or in violet, and also they could be in white, but of course white is, is the color of hope, it's the color of festivity, it's the color of rejoicing, it's, it's the color of, of, in some ways, of heaven. We give that to, to the celebration of saints. So it can maybe, you know, to celebrate a funeral in white, well, it's permitted and it's okay, but maybe it's, it seems to suggest, though, though it, it's meant to suggest for us the hope of heaven, it seems to suggest that the dead is, it's a fait accompli, he's for sure in heaven, nothing else to do. And it, it, it's not a bad thing, but it can maybe send confusing signals that we don't have to pray for this person. It's, it's, it's white, it's, it's, it's fine, it's good, he's done, he died, so therefore he's in heaven. Well, maybe he needs some, some penance, maybe he needs some prayers, maybe he needs some particular way for us to mourn and to pray for his soul or her soul. But it brings us back to the need for purification. Am I ready to stand in front of the throne of God? Can I really say that? This is what St. Rosaria says in Furrow, number 893. How happy when they die must be those who have lived who have lived heroically every minute of their life. I can assure you it is so, because I have seen the joy of those who have prepared themselves for many years with calm impatience for this encounter. So if that could be our life, uh, a preparation with calm impatience. It requires a certain mindfulness of where we are, of what is happening to us. You know, the, the digital age that we are in, with our phones and our gadgets and our social media, in many ways is kind of the opposite of mindfulness. It, it, it always shows us passing things, passing distractions, almost things that are not real, glittery things that attract our attention. I mean, even, even your phone, right? even your phone, I mean, probably all of you have it probably right now in your pocket. If I were to ask any of you, at any time of the day, pick up your phone, you would all probably be able to pick up your phone. It's rare that it wouldn't be within a meter or two away. Everybody has their phone. And, and yet, if you were to hold your phone and, and, and the tactile nature of it, as though like it were like a, an object, is very difficult to identify it. We, we just see the, the flashiness of it, like what it's telling us, like the actual physicalness, like the thingness of the phone. 
is kind of lost on us. And so, if we could develop a calm impatience for that encounter, so that every moment I'm preparing myself for that encounter, because I know I will die one day, I should not be afraid of death, because I am in the process of this calm preparation. And that preparation is ultimately dependent or, or based on your desire. Think of what you really desire. As we read in Psalm 41, My soul is thirsting for the God of my life. When can I enter and see the face of God? Like a deer that longs for springs of water, so my soul longs for you. O God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and stand before the face of God? My tears are my food by day and by night. And everyone asks, where is your God? That's a, that's a striking image. My tears are my food. He's, he's weeping, sorrowful for his sin. What are my desires? What am I truly motivated by? Does my love for heaven carry me to the fight, to struggle? That's what, that's what purification is really like. And, and what will purgatory be like? What will purgatory be like? Well, we know traditionally we've always said that purgatory is like, the, it's like a preparation to enter heaven. It's like the mud room in a, mud room in a farm. Every farm has a mud room. Like you have a lot of mud on the farm. You have the, the barn. You have the hay. You have the cows, the sheep. And, and then you have the farmer's house. But of course, you're not going to just gonna walk into the house. You're going to track all the mud into the house. It's got to be nice and clean. You know, the, the mother, the, the, the wife likes the house clean. So there's a little kind of antechamber before the, before the house where you got dirty boots and you maybe take your overalls off and, you know, clean up before you enter into the house. Otherwise, she's going to get pretty mad. And purgatory is like the mudroom. Because maybe the baptismal garment that we received in baptism has, has been in some way sullied by our attachments, sullied or dirtied by our lack of rectitude, our pride, our sensuality, our laziness. But what is it exactly that happens there in purgatory? What kind of purification is it? Well, the Catechism speaks about three essential points. That there is, a, first, that there is a purification after death. There is a purification. So that this purification involves some kind of pain, some kind of discomfort. We don't know what, but something. And that thirdly, that God assists those in this purification in response to the actions of the living. Right? So there are people right now being purified in purgatory. It's somehow painful. 
maybe not physically, but in, I don't know, who knows? I haven't been there yet, but it's... And, and we can contribute to that purification and, and purify it. No, not cause, not just, it's not that we're causing them pain, we're, we're purifying them, we're cleaning, we're in the mud room, we're helping to get the mud off. Now, the Protestants thought that, that this purification takes away from the absolute power of Christ. For them, you either get to heaven or you don't. That's it. But of course, purgatory is an expression of the power of Christ. It's just an expression of His divine mercy. Who else is, is going to purify us but Christ? Church teaches that purgatory is the final purification. It doesn't occur in some specific region or some specific place. Just that we, it happens sometime after death or the afterlife. It may not take any time. It may be instantaneous. Who knows? But somehow the Lord has foreseen that His mercy extends even after death. And it may take place right there in the immediate presence of God. If, if you want to describe the presence of God in spatial terms. But of course God is not a physical being. He's not like, He doesn't occupy a certain a space. Sometimes it has been said that souls in purgatory are like these large diamond mines. I don't know if you've ever been in a mine where they, where they obtain very, very, very precious diamonds. Well, you go into that mine and there's miners in there with their hats and their, their little lights on there. It's not a pretty place. They're dark mines, dull, and they they go in there and they and they rip out all this, all these all this stone. It's all very black, and and then they they pull it out and then they start finding within there the diamonds. But they have to cut it, they have to polish them, and. Of course, for those stones, it would be, if they could think, if they could feel, it would be painful for them. But they, they'll bring, they somehow analyze some stone, and they say, this is a diamond. They bring it to the expert, and the diamond expert, he polishes it, he, I don't know how they do this, and it eventually becomes an absolutely precious stone. I mean, what is more valuable than a diamond? And that's what, that's what purgatory is. It allows you to achieve this beauty, this excellence, a perfection that otherwise you would never know. So that we could really stand in front of the Godhead, in front of God Himself. So let us today, again, make a list. I would say that. Make a list of all the people that you have known personally that have died then make a list of all the people that you heard of that have died. Maybe a friend of yours, his mother or father or aunt or, or relative died. Make a list. Name. First name, last name. Maybe their age. 
And then you, you say, Lord, purify that soul. We typically offer masses during the month of November for souls, for the souls of people in, in the work, for, you know, for popes, for bishops, for any number of people. Because we can contribute to their purification here. It's, it's part of the active role that we have to engage in. And it also expresses our faith and our deep desire to be with Christ forever. Let us ask uh, our Blessed Mother to give us that, that desire. She will intercede for us and for all the souls in purgatory. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for